0: Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. Jenny, thank you so much for being our voice of the patient today. Would you please open us?
1: Thank you, Dr. Denham. This is a really exciting day for me to hear about the results of the study. I'm looking forward to today's webinar, and I just, again, would like to thank everyone who's here for being here, and please share the website with all of your friends, families, and colleagues. I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham.
0: Thank you, Jenny. So, Jenny, would you please share the last word with our audience? So uh, uh, that is the message uh, from Jenny, uh, uh, and what I'll do is I'll go back to our, uh, uh, our, our program. Uh, we're going to toggle back and forth today because I'm remote and actually delivering this from our, my, of my, my car. Um, Jenny is a longstanding patient advocate. She's been our voice of the patient for the, old, the whole 24 months. She is the winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award, as is uh, Dr. Greg Boats uh, and uh, Chief Adcox. We're gonna have recorded sessions uh, from Dr. Christopher Peabody, Charlie Denham III, my son. Um, Heather Foster will be joining us both live and in a recorded fashion. And Dr. Brittany Barta Owens uh, sends a message to us to keep the message going on getting vaccinations for our kids, adolescents, uh, uh, our young people, as well as uh, uh, our middle-aged and seniors. David Besk and Charlie Denham, uh, Developed a, a checklist uh, for families, which we'll address as well. Uh, so our purpose, mission, and values are critical to us. Our purpose is we'll protect that our focus is on our success, that we will protect and enrich the lives of the families and patients and caregivers. So we'll come back to our uh, our, our purpose, mission, and values, very important to us. We measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to save money, uh, uh, save lives, and create value in the communities we serve. And our core values are, spell, uh, I care. Integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We really seek to live those values. Do we every day? No. Do we uh, attempt to do so? Yes, we do. Uh, our disclosure statement is on slide 10. No one has anything that they wish to disclose. No uh, no money has been received from a, a pharmaceutical or a device uh, organization of any type, directly, indirectly, or in an affiliated way. This program has been funded by, by uh, Family Philanthropy. Uh, you can go to the website to see further information that'll be posted. And because this program will be longer than 90 minutes today, we're gonna cover a short section and then have two longer videos for those who would wish to have a deep dive. And additional information will be posted on our website uh, uh, that uh, will allow you to uh, uh, follow through on some of the information that we'll be adding over time. Uh, if you wish to kind of get to, to see our Q2 2022 progress report, we have a videotape on our website that addresses how we've tackled this variant evolution from the Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Omicron, and now we're facing um, Omicron lineages and subvariants. Uh, and uh, it will allow you to kind of see the work that we've been doing. Interestingly, this is April 5th heat map from Johns Hopkins showing where the cases have been reported. Uh, Unfortunately, when we look at today's map, uh, which we pulled off of the web this morning, you can see that now we have an uptick. And um, as most of you probably realize, uh, testing is not being reported anymore because so many people uh, are testing at home. And so we're only receiving a small fraction of the positive tests. Um, so the best thing we can do is really watch the wastewater in the communities where we live um, and the presence of the virus there, admissions to hospital, and deaths. And so we've addressed uh, this video on our master website, and you can go and watch uh, uh, the update. Now, Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Boats and Chief Adcox and I started an emerging threats community of practice before the COVID crisis to focus on the 30-some-odd um, issues that are emerging threats that should or are keeping our uh, leaders up at night in our major medical centers. Uh, And a number of organizations have participated in the shaping of this uh, with us, and you see them on uh, this uh, slide. And uh, interestingly, readiness for epidemics, including preparedness for testing and volume surges, was one of the issues that we identified long before the COVID crisis. And so this was an area that most people were worried about. For those of you that have not been with us before, uh, we, we are very blessed to draw on a, on a uh, global uh, research testbed of over 3,100 hospitals in 3,000 communities and um, 500 subject matter experts. And you say, well, how the heck could that happen? How would you have such a big group? It's because we've done so much work in patient safety over the last 37 years with the LeapFrog Group, with the National Quality Forum, with uh, four or five of the federal agencies, and um, we've been really blessed to have uh, the majority of those folks that we work with stay with us. So we drew on that group to put together this community of practice, So we started with 60 subject matter experts, and you see a number of them here. You see Chief uh, Adcox uh, on the top row there, um, and a number of great experts, uh, and uh, and actually people from the community, ranging from kids from the age of eight to 80-year-olds, and we also Drew on the contributions from our Discovery Channel documentaries, Chasing Zero and Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami. And those that are are in our next uh, two documentaries, one is Three Minutes in Counting, Bystanders Care, and one that uh, Chief Adcox and I are working on very, very uh, closely, and that is um, first responders, best responders out of the danger zone. Uh, over the last uh, two years, and I'm not going to uh, read this slide to you, but we've really been blessed to have undertaken taken the study we're addressing many broadcasts produced a a, a campus safety magazine uh, summit published uh, articles and a number of um, uh, uh, programs that we've been had the blessing of working with one was uh, to recruit a number of students uh, currently at our leading universities or alumni who contributed to uh, our, our program for Uh, for young people in high school, college, and our young adults under 30. And they uh, come from a number of uh, colleges, which you see uh, on the slide before you uh, there. And uh, we run these webinars every, uh, have been running them every first Thursday of the month. Our hope is that we won't have to run them very much longer but it all started, and now let's talk about our study. So these are the essential critical infrastructure workers uh, that were identified by Homeland Security as essential and critical uh, to our nation. In uh, August of 2020, uh, they added educators to this group. And what we found was if you save the families, we found that the, the spread was actually occurring through families and that was our our hypothesis so that's why we focused on the families of essential workers and we believe that if you save the families you save the worker and it turned out to be true Uh, we focused on the what we call the five r's Um, uh, readiness which is preparation and regular review of a plan for a family response if someone gets infected or needs care rescue if they have serious conditions Recovery is recovering from, and now we know that long COVID is a really critical issue, and resilience, and and Chief Adcox, you may want to address what target hardening is, but what what resilience is um, to focus on uh, making sure that you're you're the, the most resistant target to new threats. And we made this a cycle because we knew that we would be learning over time. Now we undertook this study focusing on the five R's using a a modified Likert scale uh, of 10, very strongly agree to one, very strongly disagree. And our questions were as follows. Um, we, We focused on my family is ready to take care of a loved one with coronavirus in our home. The second, uh, uh, and then these are the, and that's the, and the approach that we followed. I'm going to back up a minute. If you can see uh, in the in the text in the middle part of the slide. We also had a free text entry format, so people could put in the areas that they were really interested in and what was critical to them. And this was very informative uh, to us, as well as um, interviews constantly that we undertook over the 24 months. And it's much greater than 1,000 workers, but our goal was to have 1,000 workers, which we actually had families and the general public, and we exceeded that number very easily. So these are the questions that we ask. Readiness. My family is ready to take care of a loved one with coronavirus in our home. We asked the second question, my family knows what actions to take if a loved one becomes infected with coronavirus. And as the uh, evolution of quarantine and isolation occurred, we addressed it. Rescue, my family knows what to do when someone develops severe COVID symptoms and those evolved uh, as we saw with the CDC, Recovery, my family has a safety plan to return to work and play when the corona, corona social uh, restrictions are relaxed. And then resilience, my family has a plan to make them less vulnerable to epidemics in the future. Now we can't betray the, the data today because we're actually publishing these articles and we, uh, as you all probably know, the journals won't accept articles if we, uh, if we pre-release the data, but let me kind of tell you what we learned. And Chief Adcox is a co-author of this paper that was published in Campus Safety Magazine. We addressed the fact that the problem was family transmission chains, the solution were family uh, coronavirus, family safety plans, and that the plans must be flexible using impact scenarios. So we kind of know what to do if. Um, we use the 4A checklist framework, awareness, accountability, ability, and action, and we use the 5R scorecards of readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience, and we uh, will have this article posted for you so you can download it. Um, the three whys were why of a safety plan, why now, and why this, and our message was targeting educators, students, and law enforcement leaders. On the right, you see back then the family impact scenarios, which now we're updating in the final article because uh, things have changed. And now we have testing and two different types of testing or more than that number of tests. But when we developed this, we developed a grid of what to do with each of the R's, which are the columns, and each of the scenarios, which are the rows. And and this message really has been very, very well received. And now we know uh, as we head into our 20. Fifth and twenty-sixth month of dealing with the coronavirus, uh, that the scenarios have changed, and our final paper will address how things evolved. Um, I had the delight and uh, uh, and and wonderful. Uh, uh, opportunity of learning from Professor James Reason directly, who told me, and so many of us have quoted his Swiss cheese model of defenses and how um, our defenses are like holes in Swiss cheese, and we have to have many layers. And um, so we animated um, we animated uh, what he uh, described, and he actually described that it was a, actually a graduate student that hypothesized this he 's been the one to really pioneer people uh, promoting this, and many people attribute it to him and he 's so humbled to say that it was uh, it was definitely uh, a graduate student, but social distancing is a layer it lets virus through Masks are a layer we add to distancing. Disinfecting high content surfaces that at first we thought were really important. They're, they're far less important, but nonetheless re- still important. Ventilation became very important late in the pandemic because of the aerosol spread and testing became a way for us to be able to dramatically re- reduce risk. And so uh, if you had to leave today and we said, well, what do we learn in the thousand family study, and I'll go back to Bill uh, Atcox in just a moment, we learned that these are just like what they practice in security and in law enforcement, that you must have layers of protection and no one thing is going to solve the problem. So when we looked at uh, one of our webinars, we addressed our stressed emergency safety net comprised of bystander rescue care, which now we have to be a lot better equipped. EMS takes much longer. Police officers take much longer, or may not even respond to a 911 call because of uh, being short-staffed. Fire uh, uh, are also being delayed. And then our emergency departments are extremely stressed. So what do we learn? What's new? What do we need in our family plan? And how do we need to protect our families? These are those really critical elements. And we've covered this in an entire webinar. But what I'd like to do is just to address, what is the state of our safety net? And Bill and I and Dr. Boats have been using the metaphor of of us performing over a safety net. Unfortunately, there are big holes in it now because of COVID, but it also doesn't cover a lot of the emerging threats. So what did we learn? Our public safety net is stretched with many gaps. What's new? Bystander rescue care could not be more important. What do we need in our family plan? The family needs to be ready for new threats and risks. And how do we protect our families now? Prepare for delays. Just as I described, so i'd like to have dr chief and frequently I call Bill Doctor because he's as smart as any doctor i've met, and he is really really uh, a wonderful leader and pathfinder in threat safety science. Bill, can you address for us um, this safety net and i'll stop sharing so you they have a chance to see you as you speak
2: well, well thank you very much uh, dr benham and it's a, it's an honor to be here with everybody today uh, to discuss the uh, uh, pandemic and the 1,000-person uh, study, uh, you mentioned the safety net, and uh, you know you you saw all the components of the safety net, and uh, I personally have come to the conclusion that bystander care is probably the most important thing that we can all do that we have control over uh, that will help us and help our families more than anything else. The safety net is, is not only stretched, but obviously it has holes, and so when you think about uh, this, this whole issue of what the pandemic has brought to our country, as well as what was preceded by a lot of social unrest. Uh, and then you take a look at what's going on in our communities today with the economy, the inflation, and other factors. Uh, we are in a global economy. And so you talk about population kinetics. Uh, you know, people are now working from home more than they are in the offices. So the populations are shifted around. So now you're seeing a change in, in, in the opportunities for types of criminal acts. So now you're seeing criminals that are uh, that are that are changing what they do. For example, across the United States, you're seeing a, a vast increase in the, in the theft of catalytic converters. Obviously, that's for the cost of the precious metals, which you're not able to mine because of people that have been sick in the pandemic. A uh, tremendous amount of things. It's also gang members and very violent criminals have switched to that because it's more lucrative, and now when you have a confrontation, it's more violent and people are dying. And we've seen that. We've seen police officers shot and killed over that. So that's just one of the things, traffic deaths, because there's not a lot of contacts, not a lot of work with the police. Traffic deaths are at an all time high. Murders across the United States, according to the FBI director that spoke just a few days ago, is at a a 60 year high. So violent crime is way up. Traffic deaths are way up. Uh, You're seeing the types of crimes changing around. Domestic violence is way up because a lot of the victims are no longer be able to get respite by going into the office and getting away from the abuser. And so there's a lot of changes that are going on. And, and, and what's caused the problem is, is, is that you can't get that treatment that you need. You need that bystander care. Ambulances now are delayed at the emergency rooms that are, that are packed, they're overwhelmed. So now you don't have an ambulance available to go out to an emergency as we have more and more people that are sick. A lot of people are delaying their medical care, so now you're seeing other types of illnesses come to to, to bear, and more emergencies that are out there. Um, it's, it's just it's just terrible. So, um, what we even have the problem in our supply chain. We try to buy new emergency vehicles. There are no vehicles available. The manufacturing is way behind. There's, there's issues with supply across the globe. We're we're even told that there's huge delays. You know, six months or a year to get a, to get a replacement vehicles. On top of that, um, you're, you, we're, we're having what we call buy boards. The state and government has, a, has you know, a buying through a, 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 a what to call a buy board. They don't even want to sell to, to the to the local governments anymore. They don't want to sell because they can sell those vehicles if they come in to a much higher price to an individual than they can to the state and local governments. This so we're out of whack, so it's stretched that safety net. It has created holes in the safety net. And personally, I, I stress that with bystander care, it's the most important thing you do. Now, bystander care is, is pretty comprehensive because it does talk about what should you do? What is your safety plan? What do you do at your home? What do you do if you, if, if somebody does become sick and infected? How do, you, how do you separate them? How do you quarantine them? If you have to take them to the emergency room yourself, how do you do that? And what information should you have? And what, what are gonna be the limitations when you get there so that you can participate in that medical care of your loved one so so this is whole spectrum out there that bystander care covers each and every one of these these uh, webinars have covered portions of that it's available to each and every one of you anyone is available at no cost so uh, again that safety net is is in in pretty pretty tough shape right now we're asking everybody everybody in our communities to realize that and to come together and help each other so back to you you
0: thank Uh, you bill and uh, one of the one of the most surprising things is that the leading cause of death of young people now uh, has moved from motor vehicle accidents, which has been for 60 years, to gunshot wounds, right. and uh, yeah. which really kind of uh, talks about the uptick in in crime that you've addressed in the safety net, but how critical it is because somebody can bleed out in three to five minutes, and so that's why uh, bystander care is so important. Well, listen, thank you, Bill. Uh, we'll we'll come back to our slides, and we're delighted to. Uh, uh, have Heather Foster with us. We'll be addressing uh, the issue of uh, 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 our critical, um, uh, our, the uh, what to do when we are at home. Um, uh, and she was uh, just a wonderful leader of that. And I'm going to make sure to properly share the slides here. And uh, uh, and for those of you that have come on late, I'm sharing these from uh, uh, from uh, a beach in Southern California where I've had the opportunity to be, participate in a University of California Irvine Wilderness Emergency Competition and watching it and taking pictures, and it's just been awesome. So let's talk about uh, a number of the programs that we had. We, our, one of our first webinars was Coming Home Safely, Hot Zone, Warm Zone, Safe Zone. What did we learn? What's new? What do we need to do in our family? and we identified that the hot zone was at work, the warm zone was transportation and getting to and from, and our safe zone we had to maintain at home. So what did we learn? Aerosol spread is now the critical issue. We didn't know that at the beginning, so we all emphasized cleaning and washing and gloves and uh, et cetera, but now we know that vaccination ventilation, masking have enormous impact. Home testing is not being reported now and can't be an early warning sign in your community. So as we look at the balance of community immunity and infection rates, we've got to look at other numbers. What do we need to do with our family plan? Protect your vulnerable members from aerosol spread. Much more important to think about when we're telling the kids, don't dare share air. Um, How do we protect our families? Continuously monitor your community risk. Wastewater, hospitalizations hospitalizations and deaths, testing data is now weak. So uh, as we look at uh, how we kept our, our second webinar was how we keep our kids safe and how we can move from the outside and inside threats that put us at risk to a reduction in that for family safety. Dr. Brittany Owens couldn't be with us today, but continues to underscore the critical importance of vaccination and the basic behavioral principles that we need to follow. And also to make sure to get your kids into the emergency department uh, when, they, when necessary, not being afraid of getting the disease, and make sure to get the rest of those vaccinations. Uh, the, the framework that we've used is for a given threat, we have a vulnerability. So our given threat times our, our vulnerability, our weaknesses to be exploited by the threats, equals the threat to our family, the probability of harm. And so uh, our focus was on inside and outside threats and building resilience. And what's happened, as Bill said, staffing shortages in law enforcement, emergency departments, and healthcare um, have increased the outside threats. And so as we look at this, we really need to focus uh, on this now. So what did we learn? Every family needs to have, has a unique risk profile. You need to look at your family. You're not going to be like the Joneses next door. What's new? There's a huge payoff to protect your vulnerable members. Now we know that uh, our seniors our immunocompromised, uh, our children. What do we need in our plan? Protect those vulnerable members and be thoughtful about them. One shoe does not fit all. How do we cont- protect our, our families now? Continuously monitor the risk, community immunity versus infections, and know what to do if you're infected. Providing care at home, and Heather, this one was one that you just helped us so much on. Um, providing care at home. Uh, what Heather and Dr. Bo- Dr. Boats and doctors at Mayo and UCI and UCSF and our wonderful uh, group of clinical leaders uh, uh, helped us do was put together a, a care room checklist, uh, setup checklist, supplies checklist, and home care checklist. We did this early in the pandemic when we thought that contact uh, surfaces were much more important than they are now. So what do we learn? We don't need to obsess on contact surfaces. That doesn't mean we neglect them. We need to pr- do proper cleaning, but what's new was the aerosol spread and that isolation really did work and does work. What do we need in our family plan? Emphasize ventilation and family, and, and the fa- and ma- family masking. How do we protect our families now? Be ready for isolation and quarantine. The CDC guidelines are updated and testing can really impact them. So Heather, would you like to uh, share with us your thoughts of where we are now 25 months uh, after the beginning of this program?
3: Can you repeat the question there?
0: Yes, Uh, Heather, thanks for being on. We know you were up all night uh, taking care of patients. God bless you for being on today. you did such a terrific job, Heather, helping us uh, put together uh, our program and checklist for caring for people at home. And uh, now we're 24, 25, 26 months after we got started. Um, what updates, what lessons learned have we, we still, we still really need to be careful about someone at home and taking care of them. What would you like to add now that we're, you know from what we've learned over the, over the months?
3: Well, sure, Chuck. I think a big thing that we've learned through all this is that we're definitely are, are capable of taking care of patients in the home, provided we, um, we follow those guidelines, right? We, we are, we've proven that that's, that's definitely doable, um, even for the lay person. Um, again, I think the, the push for vaccine has never been greater um, and now that, that that's been FDA approved on, on many levels, especially for our kids, um, I think it, it's, it's making it definitely more manageable, not only at home, but also in the inpatient setting.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for all of all the work that you did. And you were you were a a nurse infection preventionist at the time when we were uh, building it and uh, and just counseling the families on on their worries. And would you would you agree that we have to still keep vigilant? I I think what you know, we've got waning vaccination protection at the same time, we've all got COVID fatigue, but we've also got some variants that are popping up and, and your advice to other moms and dads.
3: Yeah, I think I think we just gotta, you know, we still have masks, and I think they've been proven effective. We um we still have vulnerable patients, and quite frankly, Chuck, I think uh, we've seen people in the community that have voiced here that they're gonna continue to to be vigilant because uh, they are prone. Um, we've actually had quite a few people sick and not with COVID, um, because I think people are just. They're kind of reverting back to their old ways. Um, Flu is definitely very much alive and well, and I think uh, if we can uh, incorporate these practices that we've u- that we've used and learned with COVID, we can avoid um, those illnesses too.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate the great work you've done, and and uh, on behalf of all of us, uh, uh, our thanks to the nurses and the great care that you've delivered. Um, You're welcome. As we move to now emergency rescue skills, what did we learn what's new and what do we need in our family plans? This is a really important area, and so I'm going to abbreviate our formal presentation of the slides and make sure that we play uh, a full program on the five rights of emergency care uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Toff Peabody, Dr. Christopher Peabody. He's an emergency medicine doctor. He's the director of the UCSF Acute Care Innovation Center uh, and worked with me when we, I developed the five rights of emergency uh, care. and. Uh, he will address these and and put it in the context of today. The right provider, making sure we go to the right provider, and and if we've got something serious, we don't go to the local urgent care center, we go to the bigger hospital or those who have our records. The right diagnosis, which means having those medical records and hanging on to them and and being able to make them available. The right treatment uh, is critically important, But the right discharge heel address is vital and uh, having the right discharge precautions to know when to come back and then continuity of care in the community. And uh, we had uh, Dr. Casey Clements from the Mayo Clinic speak on this. I just was 10 10 minutes before we started, I was with Dr. Uh, Chris Fox. Right here on this in the Southern california coastline he 's uh, the chairman of the Emergency Medicine Department that is hosting the the wilderness care competition that i 'm at right now, and uh, they will all tell you that the emergency care loop is so critical, probably more important than it 's ever been before, um, that we need to really recognize protecting ourselves if we take someone who's sick to the, to the hospital, and then bringing them home. And most people didn't realize that Uber uh, didn't want to take people that were COVID positive, nor the hospitals, uh, uh, to bring them home. So what did we learn? Our safety net is definitely stretched. Preparation works. What's new? During the surges, emergency care was dramatically impacted and delayed. What do we need in our family plan? Follow our program for COVID or any emergency, the five rights of emergency care that uh, we address. And then Dr. Boats will address the five R's at the end of this program. How do we protect our families? Readiness for any emergency. And this doesn't, isn't just COVID. This is in case of an accident or uh, anything else that might be an emergency, as you heard from, doc, uh, from Chief Adcox. Uh, what do we do? They're in the ICU. Dr. Boats covered a terrific program. I'm not gonna belabor it today. Fortunately, we can have more people in the hospital than before, but still we're limited. Many are still maintaining the mask wearing and it's critical to kind of understand that even though people are, uh, are that are not getting as sick, we still have many people in ICU, many that are on respirators and even those that are on ECMO, the artificial heart-lung machines that reoxygenate the blood, and you can see those in our video, uh, the video that we have uh, uh, prepared. What did we learn? We learned that our critical care processes dramatically improved. Um, what's new? Laying patients on their abdomen in the hospital, called proning, allowed better uh, oxygen exchange. Medications have had a great impact. But what do we need for our family plan? Be ready for new surges. And what to do if loved ones get very ill? People are still getting severely ill. Still, in, still ending up in the ICU and many are still dying. Um, we will very soon break the million mark and we're 60th or, or worse in the world on how well we've taken care of this disease. So have we been good at it? No, probably not. We're 4% of the world's population with 25% of the deaths. How do we protect our families? Understand what will happen in the ICU. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail regarding the vaccines, but we we went over the 24 months alpha, beta, delta, and Omicron, and, uh, you know, this evolving nature of uh, the the variants, which which may continue, and we now have Omicron, uh, we now have Omicron variants that uh, are even 25% more transmissible than the last, which was 50% more transmissible than delta. So we know that this is still spreading and you could see the heat map at the beginning of our presentation um, that it's a pretty big hotspot where I live right here in Southern California. We also learned that the, there's a movable middle. There's still a group that we really need to tackle who might've even gotten their first vaccine or their second, but not are not up to date. And we know that the vaccine impact of the, the protection is waning. Uh, we're collaborating with and just Actually, helping distribute—we did not, we're not involved in pre-production, production, or post-production—but a terrific series of videos that are absolutely wonderful for teens and young adults. Uh, with the uh, that uh, have been developed, and you can go on our website and watch them. There are versions that are adult-focused, uh, some uh, focused for teens. They're uh, in Spanish, and they're absolutely terrific to tackle this hesitancy issue. So, what did we learn? Vaccinations are really safe and a first line of defense. Vaccine, vaccination wanes. Those, those, uh, get, can get, those with vaccinations get it, get infected. Uh, and those who are infected need it too. What do we need in our plan? Schedule the vaccinations. My wife today is getting her booster. I got my booster about two, two weeks ago, my fourth boost. how Or my fourth shot. I got the first two, got my boost, and got my second boost. Why? Because protection is waning. How do we protect our families? Uh, Many forget to get the boosters. Make sure everyone is what we would call up to date. Vaccinated doesn't mean up to date. What about long haulers? Absolutely critical. Um, The long haul disease is a time bomb. We're seeing uh, more and more cases. I personally have six friends who I'm helping and helping guide through healthcare who are having terrible experiences of fatigue or um, breathing uh, breathing problems, depression, anxiety, uh, chest issues, inflammation of the heart, Uh, 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 even we've seen some that have have had blood clots and uh, it's absolutely critical. So what did we learn? Long COVID is real, it's a time bomb. Even those with mild infections can get it. You do not wanna get COVID because you don't wanna be the subset to get long COVID. And even if you get a mild case and you think, oh, this is nothing like the flu, in six months, you could have a cardiac problem or a pulmonary problem. I've got friends that had mild disease and now can hardly get out of bed. Uh, Be vigilant and make the family aware that they can get it. Fight. COVID prevention fatigue. We've all got it. It's hard to even contemplate us doing this webinar for you, Uh, but we know we have to do it. We're all fatigued. Make sure the family uses masks, avoids closed spaces, and keeps safe. We covered 10 best practices for reopening. We also covered the four P's, which are prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. Chief Adcox helped us understand the concept of getting left of boom, which was a military expression of get, moving up the chain from IED damage that occurred to our great soldiers uh, uh, and moving uh, moving up to where the bomb makers were to be able to stop them. It, just, it doesn't pay to say, oh, I'll wait till we have an explosion and then will have armor, what they said was, let's move up the chain and, and stop them from making the bombs. In the same way, we've got to do that with COVID. And we focused on the four Ps, prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. This is the model that we're, that Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats and our team are using uh, to, uh, to study uh, uh, threat safety science. We won't belabor it, it's a great webinar. We put together an essential worker toolbox uh, to address uh, uh, the critical issues. But today we will talk about special care for special populations. What did we learn about those that are immunocompromised, seniors in our children? We know that certain people are very vulnerable to COVID. We don't know why some are and some aren't, but cancer patients and and transplant patients are very vulnerable. So you may be somebody who says, look, I don't care. I don't want to wear a mask because I don't care if I get COVID, but you may spread COVID to someone who's vulnerable and really wearing a mask is really, I believe the patriotic thing to do, wearing a mask to protect the other folks in your communities. And it's a community service thing, whether you get COVID or not. Prevention behaviors really do work. That's what's new. We know now aerosol, masks, ventilation critically uh, impact things. What do our families need to do? We really need to customize our family plan. You may have a family that has nobody who's vulnerable. I've got a family with three members of my family. They're very vulnerable. We behave differently. We don't go to restaurants right now and, and eat indoors. We just pick restaurants that are outdoors and then we don't worry about it. We have friends over. Do we have them indoors? No, we have them outdoors. Um, we, we are customizing our approach depending on who we're with. How do we protect our families? We've got to fight COVID prevention fatigue. The variants are still present and the communities have let their guards down and it's a real challenge. Now, um, we, uh, I just had the wonderful opportunity of spending time with Dr. Robert Katzer. Dr. Katzer is one of the emergency medicine doctors who helped uh, Charlie Denham, my son and David Besch. Uh, by helping us teach our MedTech program here on the West Coast. He's actually the lead of the Wilderness Emergency Medicine program that's right behind me. They're getting ready to have a break uh, and uh, they they will identify who the top leaders are. And Dr. Katzer helped us understand travel. David Bashk and my son, Charlie, put together a checklist. Uh, uh, now, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Katzer advised us from the emergency medicine standpoint, as did Dr. Clements and Dr. Fox, but it was actually uh, uh, David Bashk, an award-winning teacher, and these youngsters who, uh, back when we started MedTech in 2015, who helped develop a checklist uh, for the family lifeguard. What was it? it was a way for us to protect ourselves when we have events. Now we may be through the woods on Omicron, maybe uh, Omicron BA2 and 2.22 and whatever we move on to may not be a problem. And we, you know, COVID may be something of the past, let's hope it is, but there are other pandemics that are coming our way. We know that for sure. And being able to have an event and practice what we do before an event, during and after an event uh, uh, was our focus. And so what uh, Mr. Beshkin and Charlie did was put together a set of checklist items. Uh, And what they did was over the last two years modified it. We didn't know about rapid antigen testing and identifying whether people were vaccinated or vulnerable and at risk, as you see in the middle checklist at the very beginning. So this checklist has evolved. And so what did we learn? Aerosol spread, again, much more important than contact surfaces, so spend less time wa- wearing gloves and washing up before and after an event, although we want to wash and we want to be careful, but we really want to be careful about don't, not, don't dare share air, keep uh, our bathrooms ventilated, and make sure to wear masks if we're indoors. We don't know whether our guests are vaccinated or not. If we know, that's a help. If everybody gets a rapid antigen test, we don't wear masks. Uh, we're, we're, we're outside and we don't worry about it. What's new? The huge payoff to attention to vaccination of guests, using the rapid testing, avoiding indoor, uh, indoor and poor ventilation. And what do we need in our family plan? build in that aerosol precautions. And uh, Dr. Katzer, uh, and I won't go into the detail, but we had a whole session on travel and what to do uh, on the whole loop of, of travel, uh, air travel, train travel, car travel. Um, bystander rescue care, uh, We uh, Chief Adcox and I and Dr. Boats have been working diligently on these eight target areas. And what we learned with bystander rescue care is that good Samaritan care, care can be saved, even though people have COVID. Emergency response services are stretched more than ever. We could deliberately practice to take care of people, use, for instance, HEPA filters, we can do CPR and use an AED, wear gloves and masks and take care of people. We should never avoid being a good Samaritan if we use the proper protective personal protective equipment. You'll hear from Dr. Cox uh, in a recent video that we have uh, that he has taken care of patients for two years. He's been intubating patients, he's been in poorly ventilated areas, but he wore an N95 mask. He was very careful with hand washing Never got COVID. Uh, So, and then testing to navigate care was another topic. And I highly recommend you watch the whole program. We re-reviewed it. There's almost no new information. We're pretty up to date on that. Um, We focused on both the antigen test and when we use a a rapid antigen test and when a PCR test is indicated and how that relates to the viral load. I won't go into the detail, but I will tell you that that, that it really helps uh, families understand the difference between the RT-PCR test, when to use it, when your doctor will use it, and the rapid antigen test. So what did we learn? Consumers have great confusion regarding testing. Watch the full video. I think it'll really be worth it. We spent two to three weeks developing it and uh, it's still up to date. Home antigen tests tell us whether we're contagious. PCR tests can be positive after you're contagious. Um, What do we need in our family plan to make sure everyone understands the basics of testing? And what can we do to protect our families? Have home rapid antigen tests ready for the next surge. Pay attention to the CDC. Do the test work maybe with the next variant or not work? And we can use those those tests to allow us to to really uh, do the kind of work that we want to um, have done to protect our families. our, our uh, folks that have been with us uh, today uh, live are uh, Chief Adcox and Heather Foster. We're going to show some video clips of, uh, Chief, uh, of uh, that, Chief, uh, uh, that Dr. Boats uh, is reviewing the five R's, and especially uh, Dr. Peabody addressing the five rights uh, of emergency care. I have uh, poor battery life on my computer here, uh, and I'll have Kyle uh, Kemp play those videos. But what I wanted to do was to re- have you remember all of our teams, we say fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. And I'm going to uh, uh, stop sharing for a moment uh, here and uh, uh, just want to uh, see if uh, uh, if uh, Chief uh, Adcox, uh, are, are you still with us? If so, do you have any concluding comments that you'd like to make? And Heather, before we move on to the videos, and we'll play the vi- and what we'll do is we'll play uh, um, uh, Jenny Dingman's close, and uh, and then we'll play these longer tapes for those that want to watch the extended session. Go ahead, Chief.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh, no, I just the only closing thoughts I have is to is to ask everybody to please avail themselves to all the information, go through there, pick out what they need, and and to develop their their safety plans and to get all their family trained as bystander rescue people, so that they can do what they need to do and uh, just help one another in the community. Keep your eyes open, and and uh, we'll we'll be safe and we'll get through all of this. Uh, but we're in one of the most trying times in our lifetimes. So.
0: And Thank, you, so Thank you for being such a terrific uh, pathfinder in threat safety science and working on the final papers that we'll publish of our 1,000 uh, family hospital study. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a series of papers, it may even be a book, because we've, got, we've had a lot of work that I think that will contribute to future epidemics and pandemics. And we've certainly learned how our public health systems have failed and how we've failed to take care of our family. So there's a lot that we can do. Heather, are there any final comments that you'd like to make before we move to uh, Jenny Dingman and uh, and then play the sessions uh, from uh, on fi- the five rights of emergency care and the five Rs?
3: Um, just that we're I'm so grateful, uh, Chuck, that we have this platform to work from uh, to help others. Um, and then again, just encourage many people to uh, continue to be vigilant in this fight against COVID.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you on behalf of us for all the caregivers at the front line that have done a great job. We know that workplace violence is just off the charts, and a lot of people are, uh, are very frustrated, and they take it out on their caregivers, and we're so blessed to have you uh, uh, yeah, hanging in there for us. So thank you so much. So uh, what I'd like to do is have Kyle uh, Kim uh, now uh, play. Kyle, would you please uh, pay, play uh, Jennifer Dingman's closing thoughts? Then we'll move to Dr. Peabody's five uh, rights of emergency care. And from that we'll move to uh, Dr. Boats addressing the five Rs of the safety plan for those that are unfamiliar of, uh, uh, with them. And uh, thank you very much. I know my battery life will die. We did this as a, uh, as a prevention so that uh, I'd be able to continue to serve here, uh, uh, here out remotely. Thank you so much. Jenny, would you please share with us your last word, the voice of the patient?
1: Thank you, Dr. Denham. This study has just been so enlightening for me and the results of this study will help all of us with our families and the people that we love proceed in the new normal. We don't necessarily know what the new normal is going to be, but at least now we have a road map thanks to groups like this one. Again, I want to thank everyone for being here today and everyone who's listening in, please share this information widely with your colleagues and looking forward to future webinars. God bless everyone. Thank you, Jenny.
0: Care University serves patients, family caregivers, and professional caregivers with education targeting care issues with expertise from a network of more than 500 subject matter experts from leading medical centers. And we will measure our success by how we will protect and enrich the lives of the families we serve, both those of patients and professional caregivers, because everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. At CareU, our challenge is to target what we call high-impact care hazards, those conditions that are the most frequent, severe, preventable, and measurable. Our solution is to help patients, families, and professional caregivers adopt new behaviors that can become life-saving habits, which we call lifeline behaviors. Few families have been spared from the fear and stress of a healthcare emergency. From a
4: team to emergency. Our emergency department visit was a blur. It's so frightening to have someone you love in trouble. Normally I can deal with stressful events, but I was just paralyzed without a guide and a checklist to follow. We would have been lost
0: whether you or a loved one receive acute care for an emergency chronic care over time or even preventive care to stay free of disease there are many things you can do to make your journey safer and better there are very specific actions you can take especially during an emergency when stress can blind even the most competent of us this module addresses a framework we use to help you get the best emergency care possible this framework is called the five rights of emergency care we created a simple checklist you can use with a paper and pen that applies to what you learn or download it and use it on a computer or even use it as an application on your smartphone your caregiver may even provide it during an office or emergency room visit so let's review what you'll learn about the five rights of emergency care the framework has five main sets of right lifeline behaviors or rights that you can follow to get the best emergency care for you or your loved one the right provider if you have an emergency in your own area it is important to know where the emergency care providers are and if you have time to make a choice make the best choice most people think of going to the nearest hospital however that may not be the best choice for you or your family Emergency services vary from urgent care centers, many of which are like a 24-hour doctor's office that provides certain but not all emergency services, to specialty emergency departments at hospitals that specialize in trauma, stroke, cancer, and pediatric emergencies that strike children. What is critical to know is that your prior medical records are vital to your care and without access to them, tests may need to be repeated to get the right information this can cause great delays when time is of critical importance so one factor if you have a choice is to go to the emergency department at a hospital where you've already been treated that has access to your medical records for instance you might drive right by an urgent care center and go a little farther to the hospital where you've been treated before this will save you significant time and money and may even save your life many times emergencies like car accidents falls strokes or heart attacks strike with little warning and that is why your ICE ICE or your in case of emergency contact information should be in your wallet and on your smartphone we will show you how you can put this vital information on your phone because first responders are taught to check there first you need to have more than one contact since you might be with the family member you choose during an accident the right diagnosis. Bring your medical records if you have time to get them together, a full set of them if you have them. Anyone with a serious disease should have a set accessible at all times. Secondly, bring all your medications, including the over the counter medicines you regularly use, in a bag so that the doctor can see them. This should include vitamins and dietary supplements. If you have a medication list you follow, bring that too for many emergency conditions your blood will be drawn and prior records are important for comparison always find out why you're getting such a test and what will be done with the results finally x-rays and other imaging tests may be run such as ultrasound studies and again prior studies or at least prior reports of imaging may be helpful sophisticated imaging studies such as cat scans or magnetic resonance imaging studies MRIs may be done make sure to know why and ask how you can get those studies on compact discs for the future so that you can leave with them if you ask the imaging technologist when they are done it can really save time if you or your loved one are too sick to ask any family member can do the asking always graciously the staff are your best friend the right treatment shared decision-making is a way of working with patients and families that our best caregivers are trying to do This means they are involving you and your preferences in the care that you or your loved one receive. So don't be afraid to ask questions and understand what the emergency department team are recommending for your care. The plan for your care might involve treatment to address short-term symptoms as well as long-term care recommendations. For instance, you might come in with a cut that needs to be sewn up or a procedure, and during your visit, they find that you have high blood pressure that your primary care doctor will need to treat soon. There may also be additional things that they need to do after initial symptoms are treated. In a majority of ED visits, a prescription for medication will be written, and over-the-counter medicines will also be recommended. You need to know what they are, why they're recommended and when to start and stop taking them. Two thirds of patients in hospital beds come through the emergency department. So a hospital admission may be recommended for you or your loved one. Ask why the hospital admission is necessary and who will be the caregiver team they will hand you off to when you move to a hospital bed. Ask what's important about the care that you'll receive. A huge proportion of medical errors occur during such handoffs and you and your family need to be a vital part of the communication chain. Frequently patients sit in hospital beds awaiting care and a knowledgeable and gracious family member can help keep things moving. Right discharge. This is one of the most important segments of the trip to the emergency department. Imagine your symptoms have been addressed and you think you're out of the woods and on your way home this is where so much preventable suffering cost and worry can be addressed with the discharge plan return precautions are absolutely vital this means what you need to know about returning to the emergency department you need to understand your medical problem that was treated the diagnosis and what was determined through testing the treatment you receive and what you'll need to do or receive going forward the vital return precautions what you need to be watching for like a rise in temperature or other things such as no improvement or a return of symptoms simply put any reason why you should return to the emergency department your care team will give you a list just like you reconcile your bank book you must have a reconciled or updated medication list if medications have been changed make sure to know what to take and what not to take understand your care plan what you need to do after you leave so you can get better, the wound care, diet, and special treatment needs that need to be addressed, what to do, who to see, and what you will need to do when you see them. And the one thing people fail to remember is to get all the paperwork. Try to get all the imaging reports and test results. They will save you an enormous amount of frustration and cost later on. And if you can get the imaging studies on CD, do so. These imaging studies are expensive, costly to duplicate, and vital in the future. Many organizations will give them to you on a compact disc. At the end of an emergency department visit is the best time to get your records. You'll have a terrible time trying to get them later. The right follow-up. This starts with the regular caregivers or the primary caregivers you need to see an update regarding your emergency department visit. Do not presume that they will get the records from the hospital or the emergency department without you. If you bring them on your follow-up visit, you know they will have them. Update your home records, both with the emergency department records and whatever your regular doctors do in follow-up. Keep hard copies, and if you can, keep digital ones. And finally, emergency department visits often stimulate the need to see new doctors, specialists, or even get second opinions and there are right ways to get them and many wrong ways to get these visits. Patients and families can play an enormously important role in getting the test and emergency department records to all of your doctors to get the best follow-up care possible. So now that you've been introduced to the Five Rights of Emergency Care Framework, you can see how learning about new lifeline behaviors can really have impact. Other CareU modules will help you along the way. Of special importance might be the five rights to your medical records and the trip to see a specialist, how to get a second opinion and others. There is so much you can do by being engaged and working with your professional caregivers. God bless you on your journey. So, Top, thank you so much for taking time to help enhance and build on the concept of the five rights uh, of emergency care. Now that we're in a very intense time and we we know about the a lot of the COVID-related issues. What are you seeing now that we need to be aware of as patient safety leaders regarding uh, delayed diagnosis, misdiagnosis? What are the things you're seeing that we really need to be aware of?
4: Well, there's a, there's a number of things, Chuck. I think it all stems from kind of communication. Um, and the communication really uh, has to do with uh, the caregivers that join patients, especially in the emergency department. And what we're seeing is is that the the patients aren't um, allowed to have their caregiver um, uh, present. Um, A lot of times the the triage um, uh, nurse uh, gets the information as best they can. And then the uh, patient's caregivers is dismissed and uh, the the patient comes back to the emergency department unaccompanied. Um, And so a lot of times this uh, information is transferred, uh, critical information is transferred uh, from the caregiver to the to the care team uh, over the phone, um, and uh, sometimes that's delayed. Um, sometimes we don't have the right medication list, so medication reconciliation is a is a big deal um, at the moment. Uh, we see patients that are reluctant to come to the emergency department, and have in certain cases seen kind of delays in care. We've also seen that um, the effects of telemedicine is uh, for primary care. Um, and uh, in particular a a couple of cases where um, in prenatal care where uh, blood pressures weren't able to be taken in the third trimester because uh, the the visits were switched to uh, video visits and we didn't have accurate blood pressures uh, on uh, very critical patients. So we've seen some uh, um, critical cases kind of fall through the cracks because of um, issues related to um, our national emergency.
0: How about adverse drug events? What, are you seeing a change in the kinds of adverse drug events that you would typically have seen previously and what you see today?
4: It's always, I always want someone at the bedside um, with the patient that knows them better than I do. Um, And what I'm finding is is that um, the the, the caregiver that is normally with the patient day in and day out, whether that be their spouse, that be a a caregiver that goes into the house um, daily to work with our um, elderly patients, um, isn't aren't allowed at the bedside anymore. So yes, we are seeing a lot of issues, um, especially in relation to medication reconciliation. Um, Most of these cases are near misses. Most of them are, but as we know, uh, the near uh, misses in patient safety is the siren right before a major event And so I I personally haven't seen a a major event yet um, in relation to uh, medications, uh, but I've seen a lot of near misses.
0: How about adherence and compliance to the use of the medicines now that uh, there's a protracted time period between them seeing primary care or specialists? Do you see people dropping off of their meds and not taking their anticoag or not taking their blood pressure medicines or not taking critical medicines that are keeping them healthy?
4: I have seen a number of cases where uh, patients have waited for refills because they have to go in to um, or have a a telemedicine visit uh, to be able to do that. So I've had a couple of uh, patients who came in at the end of their um, when their medications have run out and they haven't been able to take them for a few days uh, to get um, to get prescriptions. And this is in the emergency department. Uh, So I'm sure our primary care colleagues are seeing a lot a lot of this right now. Um, I've also seen. a number of patients um, uh, not have their medications especially blood pressure medications adjusted um, as, as frequently as they may um, in the pre-COVID times because uh, there we haven't been able to get accurate blood pressures um, again in the in the kind of telemedicine world that we're living in.
0: Do you think there's a place for a virtual med reconciliation so that people don't have to go in but we are looping back and just reconciling the meds and making sure everything's as planned and everybody's in agreement?
4: Well, absolutely. And I I actually am a huge proponent of uh, telemedicine and think that um, the access that it provides for patients is crucial in these times and also moving forward. I think it's uh, here to stay. I just think that there's certain aspects of it that um, that need to be ironed out. Um, one of those that I've seen, um, and I'll, I'll mention it again, is kind of accurate blood pressures. How are we gonna do that in the era of, uh, of telemedicine is a home blood pressure cuff um, enough And do patients um, that have limited access to healthcare have access to those devices. Um, so yes, I think a virtual um, medication reconciliation, is kind of in the pipeline, is probably being used in certain systems. Um, I do worry about kind of that digital divide for uh, for patients that um, have uh, lower access to health healthcare in general. Um, But uh, I think, yes, we are seeing this um, being very much accelerated uh, um, because of COVID
0: so uh do you recommend that every family should have a pulse oximeter we've seen that a lot of people are starting to recommend not having that in addition to recognizing the cdc's emergency signs which they've now got posted on their website that they they relate to oxygen saturation would you recommend families that can afford it to get a pulse oximeter
4: Well, especially families that um, are COVID positive, I think uh, um, having a pulse oximeter is a a really good idea. Um, Should every family have a pulse oximeter hanging around? I'll tell you, our family does, Um, but uh, I'm also an emergency physician and like to have that data around. Um, But I don't think it needs to be a standard kind of family thing unless you have one of those diagnoses, Um, especially COVID uh, being one of those diagnoses. Um, I think having a pulse oximeter um, is is key to kind of um, the way we've been seeing the the disease progress um, when you're when you're at, um, at home, and so yes, a pulse oximeter in certain circumstances is vital for um, care at home.
0: How about having your medical records on a, on a thumb drive and being able to come in with that? Are you all able in the emergency department to be able to access a thumb drive or are there security issues that make it hard to do that?
4: Yeah, you know what Chuck, I think um, having, having your medical records and at least your medications kind of on your mobile device and being able to show that um, directly to the, to the clinician and to the, your care team so that they can input it into their system. Um, is actually um, perfectly perfectly fine and probably easier for patients to have because it's something they have on them all the time. Um, so I've been finding that uh, very helpful. Um, and uh, I, to to date, I haven't ever had a patient come in with a, a thumb drive that I've been able to access. So um, I think that but the phone uh, records that happens all the time. So is that a patient portal that your um, healthcare system already has that you can show your um, the paramedics that come or the, um, or the uh, emergency uh, providers once you get to the emergency department, um, that would be great. Um, but if you don't have access to one of those portals that has your um, up-to-date information, keeping a list of your medical diagnoses and keeping a list uh, especially of your medications, including the dosing, dosing is critical for um, the care team in the emergency department.
0: Fantastic. So really, we can put on our phones, we can put files and learn how to put files on our phones that can be opened up. Um, do you recommend e- having family members email records directly to the emergency department? Uh, is that allowable in, ter- in terms of HIPAA these days if we can't get things to you directly?
4: Again, I think most of the emergency care information is done kind of uh, in a face-to-face manner. Um, And so I think showing them uh, the document on your phone itself is is perfectly acceptable. Um, I, uh, um, again, uh, haven't had a patient email me um, uh, because I worry about the security of of kind of that transfer um, uh, in relation to HIPAA. Um, There are ways to send secure emails. Um, There are ways to kind of, uh, especially in in certain healthcare systems, um, send uh, secure emails to your Um, providers. Um, However, in the emergency department, it's usually a fast-paced environment. I would much rather just uh, have you show me um, uh, the information you have on your screen.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Coming back to medications and adverse drug events, we know the top three are anticoagulation, uh, opioids, and diabetic agents. Are you seeing things later and you are seeing compounding problems with them? They're over 60% of our adverse drug events.
4: So it's interesting, um, especially, so I work in the Bay Area in San Francisco and we've been seeing a lot more uh, fentanyl overdoses uh, kind of hitting uh, the levels of of what we were seeing back East uh, before COVID. Uh, We've been also seeing a a, a lot of anxiety and depression um, uh, in relation to, I think the the lockdowns that have been happening um, and the social distancing and not being able to kind of interact with people. Uh, so we've been seeing a lot of kind of isolation and, um, and and folks um, uh, uh, self-medicating uh, because, of, because of this. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of exacerbations of depression, we've seen more suicide attempts than we have um, in the past, and uh, I've seen more fentanyl overdoses um, uh, lately. Um, and I'm not sure if that's uh, necessarily related to COVID, um, but I will say that... Uh, is probably related to the access of of these of this medications coming into our region.
0: How about anticoagulation and related to and not related to covid? Do you see are you seeing any changes that I think
4: uh, I think um mostly the the things around anticoag that I've been seeing is uh getting access to your um, prescriptions um uh, especially folks that are um having uh that um, take anticoagulation for um, a valve, uh, a valve replacement. Uh, most of these patients are still on, on warfarin or on Coumadin um, and they they haven't been able to access the Coumadin clinic as, as much as they right. had in the past. Um, so we have been seeing some super therapeutic uh, kind of uh, uh, warfarin levels um, come through the emergency department. Um, we've been seeing basically the same amount of kind of um, Head injuries and those those things um, in in relation to uh, the NOACs, um, the new the novel anticoagulation agents, um, it, but as far as uh, the 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 errors that are around in anticoagulation are are still present um, as they were before COVID, uh, so we haven't seen really much change.
0: So, what about diabetic agents and diabetics?
4: So we've been. Seen a lot. I, I mean, I can't imagine how um, difficult and challenging it must be to kind of have your practice completely changed as a primary care physician. Um, so I'm gonna assume that there's been a number of changes within the management of diabetes, especially um, with uh, you know you may even have better access to health coaching now with uh, with telemedicine, uh, but uh, getting access to kind of uh, patient records and uh, getting uh, glucose checks in in the clinic. Um, obviously, patients don't have those types of uh, type of access. Um, in the emergency department, I bas- basically have seen uh, no significant change. I see um, diabetes out of control before COVID, and I've seen diabetes out of control um, after COVID. So uh, both of the, uh, so we s- still see a lot of uh, uh, diabetic related complications coming through the emergency department, perhaps some of them uh, coming in a little later than they would have otherwise. Um, but uh, but I've seen no real significant change there on the medication front.
0: And how about with children? are you seeing delayed diagnosis of uh, appendicitis, asthma, and the various things that you're seeing in kids? are you are you seeing uh, a, a change in, 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 uh, in what families are doing with their kids? Well,
4: it's interesting're so we're going into flu season now. Um, uh, i've seen a significant decrease in the amount of kids that have been coming to the emergency department and for caps that's because of social distancing um uh, children aren't getting the amount of uris uh, that's triggering asthma exacerbations or something like that i think um you know maybe early on in the in the pandemic we saw it um um, exacerbations of asthma that waited a little too long. But I would say that now uh, that the community is kind of opening back up and uh, that uh, people are trusting um, the um, kind of procedures that we have in the emergency department to keep people safe. Um, I, I haven't seen that uh, significant amount of delayed diagnosis in children, but I have seen the volume of children coming through the emergency department uh, uh, de- still still being decreased.
0: Dr. Peabody, you've done a fabulous job helping me articulate the five rights of emergency care. Can you apply the five rights as they pertain to children and teens?
4: Absolutely, so I think in with the COVID-19, um, knowing the five rights when you wanna to come to the emergency department is as important as it was beforehand. Um, there are a few things that you should know about coming to the emergency department. Uh, that is different in the COVID era. Uh, The first one is, is to know that if you need to come to the emergency department, please do. Uh, We wanna see you and your loved one uh, in the emergency department, should they have a a needed emergency.
0: So what about the right provider?
4: Chuck, the right provider for emergency care is is crucial. Uh, You wanna go to a place that has your records, uh, knows your general history, or has contact with your primary care system. Uh, That was true before the pandemic and is true right now um, during COVID-19. You want to go to the emergency department that knows you. Um, If that's not possible, go to the closest place that uh, you can um, if it's a true emergency. And if it's an emergency where you have to call an ambulance, be aware that the ambulance will make those decisions for you and usually chooses the exact right place for the critical moment that you're facing.
0: So what about the right diagnosis as it applies to children and teens? I think
4: especially when it comes to to teens and young adults, Chuck, is that they may have never been to the emergency department by themselves. And during COVID-19, it may be the first time that they go to the emergency department. And so just knowing that you should have your medical information, the medications that you're taking, any workup or lab results that are recent, any imaging that may uh, that the that you and your family may have is going to be really important to have on hand for that physician and care team that see you that one point in time in the emergency department. So I think this uh, really pertains to to teens that are just kind of learning uh, what the an emergency visit is like.
0: So as we talk about uh, the right diagnosis, and we think about uh children and teens and maybe only one parent there communication is going to be pretty vital isn't it uh, as you think about the, uh, the, the right treatment
4: absolutely so communication is always key in in, um, in closing the loop uh is with your care team knowing exactly what's going on what i've found with COVID-19 and especially with uh you know parents that may not be able to be with their loved one whether it be a teen that is coming alone or if um, most places are only allowing one parent to come with their child. So um, we're using whatever means possible it is to close the loop with parents. And if that includes um, electronic media like uh, FaceTime or text messaging, we'll do that.
0: So you've made a great point in the Five Rights about the right discharge and return precautions. What's important as we think about these younger kids and young adults and teens?
4: Emergency physicians and their care teams only see you at one point of time and sometimes and during that point of time the right diagnosis may not have been come to. So you really want to know when to come back to the emergency department if things change. And so getting the right discharge instructions, closing that loop with your care team, going out and going home, um, it's actually one of the most crucial points of of knowing what, what's going on in the emergency department. So. Uh, The right discharge um, is probably the, out of the five rights, Chuck, I think that's the one where I would focus the majority of my time.
0: And then finally, the right follow-up, that continuity of care back with the pediatrician and making sure that the flow of information uh, can occur, and and I I would expect in COVID, that's even more challenging.
4: Absolutely, as uh, primary care visits have gone almost completely online, Um, you want to be able to have your primary care access the information that uh, was gained during that emergency department visit. And so knowing what that right uh, follow-up is, asking the emergency uh, physician and the emergency physician care or the emergency department care team um, while you're being discharged, hey, what should be my follow-up plan? And is there any information that's not going to be translated directly to my uh, primary care team? Um, And if there isn't, then come up with a plan on how to get that information back to your primary care group.
0: Fantastic, Toph. You're always so helpful as we talk about emergency medicine and patient safety. This has been really helpful.
4: Thank you, Chuck. And, uh, you know, if there's ever any other questions, I'm always happy to come back on.
0: Well, Dr. Boats, we uh, we started out with our survey uh, uh, and now have more, uh, many more than 1,000 family responses to our survey addressing the five Rs. We're now 24 months uh, into this pandemic. And as you look at advising families of critical essential workers and the general public, let's cover the five Rs. And so the first R uh, is readiness. After 24 months, how should a family look at readiness?
5: Well, I would hope that a family would look at readiness the way we did from the very beginning, which is have a plan. Think about what your risks are, especially if you have family members who are in a high risk population with immunocompromise or chronic medical problems. And use that information to formulate your plan and stay ready. You should constantly think about what are the risks in not only my community but in the activities that I'm going to do now especially since things are opening up and we're much more likely to be in contact with larger groups of people Uh, we need to think about that in trying to maintain the safety of ourselves and our families.
0: The second R is response. We know a lot more about what to do if we have a family member who has a positive test, and many of us are getting notified frequently that our family members, our kids in school, are in contact with someone that uh, has been uh, has been confirmed to have the disease. Uh, anything new that we should think about as we think about how to respond if a family member A, gets sick, or B, is in contact with someone who has had the virus?
5: Well, I think that not only did we think about readiness but now we're thinking about how to actually deploy our family safety plan if in fact someone becomes infected it's the same strategies that we've talked about all along to try to reduce not only the risk to the person who has the coronavirus for their safety but also the safety of those around them i think that the strategy is still the same i think having vaccination as part of the readiness plan has perhaps mitigated some of the concern for a very severe illness that we might see in someone who comes down with a COVID uh, viral infection. But nonetheless, the rest of those strategies in our family plan still remain true and we should practice them.
0: Our third R is rescue. And we certainly know a lot more about what to do if we have a family member who is sick and needs to go to the emergency department. Uh, You and Dr. Peabody from UCSF, uh, our wonderful teammate, and Dr. Chris Fox from uh, UCI. And uh, his colleagues have really helped us understand the factors that are important as we uh, try to rescue someone uh, who might be getting sick. And now we've been around quite a few that have gotten sick and actually needed help getting to the hospital or even have long COVID and might need to go to the hospital. Any tips regarding 24 months after we have uh, started to learn about this virus?
5: Well, I think the concept of rescue is important because we have to have a plan for how to go from home care where we are providing the level of care necessary for someone who's infected with coronavirus, to now seeking healthcare in a hospital or a clinic. And uh, I will tell you perhaps the difference over the last two years is that it's not the chaotic pandemonium that it was before in an emergency room. And the healthcare system is learning how to work in a PPE driven environment much better than we did initially first the supplies are better people are used to using those strategies and so it's more part of the fabric of how we practice but it still can be challenging because of you know the safety measures in place access to emergency departments can be limited simply because of those strategies they still have in place remember that people are going there also for other routine care injuries illnesses all the reasons that people might go to an emergency room you know, prior to COVID are still in play. Uh, But now we have people who may need rescue because they aren't able to manage their illness at home and they seek additional care or a higher level of care. Um, I think it's still the same challenge. It may not be to the same magnitude, but we have to take that into account when we're making our plan.
0: Our fourth R is recovery. And I don't know about you, but many of us have friends, family members, colleagues that are now suffering from long COVID. And I use the term time bomb. This is really, this is a time bomb in that uh, it goes off after someone may have been sick. And I've got dear friends who are having a very difficult time getting back to any semblance of normal life. Uh, and it paradoxically, uh, you and I talked about the fact that when we try, they try to exert themselves to get some exercise and get out and mobile, that it just knocks them back, and it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. Um, your advice to folks regarding what we know about long COVID, and I use it as a cautionary tale to say, people may be tired of COVID, but listen, you do not want to get long COVID. This is a terrible, terrible thing that happens to you.
5: Right. When we think about recovery, we're not only considering those people that have perhaps a normal recovery from a viral illness, which is how we hope COVID moves going forward. In that, it's just one of the other viral syndromes that we have to deal with, and we aren't seeing the very critically ill response that people have, and uh, and certainly at risk for ending up in an ICU with life support and Know, very significant end organ system dysfunction. But you're absolutely right. We need to think about long COVID, which is the circumstance where people who have been infected with COVID have long standing, uh, prolonged symptoms that can affect many of our organs. And notably, there's a lot of cognitive problems that can go along. We've heard about the brain fog and people who have had long COVID are very limited in their ability to go back to work because they can't multitask, they can't remember things, Um, they're afraid of making mistakes especially if they're working in a high stakes environment like many of our essential workers are. They can have respiratory problems like um, a prolonged cough or difficulty with breathing or with sputum production and things like that that limit their ability to carry on their activities of daily living. There can be cardiac abnormalities that people see most notably would be just having a very uh, high heart rate, a tachycardia um, for no real reason. You know, they're not exerting themselves very much and suddenly their heart rate's going in the 120 to 140 range. There can be neuromuscular problems that can go on with with problems with, uh, you know, how well uh, you can maintain your balance or how well you can walk and ambulate without putting yourself at risk for falling. All of these things we've seen before in a number of different illnesses, but not so concentrated, I think, in a post-viral syndrome, like we're seeing in many, many people. The real challenge is that the healthcare system is learning how to understand and manage COVID while it's happening. And we're really playing catch up. There are a lot of people that are suffering and we don't have a lot of answers yet because we don't have numbers That tell us whether the interventions that we're considering really make sense. We haven't we don't have the power to decide whether it's an effective intervention or not. And so we're learning as we go.
0: Thank you. And the the fifth R is resilience. And I like to characterize resilience as a way of living going forward to reduce. Uh, The potential risk of the threat and use even the military term of target hardening or the law enforcement term of target hardening and for my family, I look forward and I say what are the activities that we have over the next month what's the ventilation of those uh, buildings where there might be something held can we pick an outdoor venue can we pick an outdoor restaurant can we socialize or go to go to church services that are outside and uh, and and really reduce our vulnerability from the outside uh, outside threat get everybody in the family vaccine up to date Uh, fully vaccinated, I think is a term that's going to go away. I think up to date is perhaps another way we can look at it. And uh, so this idea of resilience or hardening the target of your family to these outside threats, as well as the inside threats of vulnerabilities.
5: Well, I think you're right. I think resiliency is really an important dimension of our ongoing response to the COVID pandemic and any other illness or any other chronic medical problem that we face. Uh, I think that uh, the idea of critically evaluating your activities moving forward to understand uh, both the, the risks that it might pose to you and your family and the vulnerability that you might have at that particular time in you or your family is an important consideration. And you also have to think about the dimension of resiliency, which is if something happens, how well do we respond and manage it so that we don't fall apart. So that we don't have a catastrophic event, how do we prepare and behave so that when we are faced with that we follow our plan and we behave in a way that reduces
0: perhaps the impact of that event and keeps us from
2: falling apart. And that that concludes today's webinar. Thank you for attending.